You tell me what I can't say. You censor what I can. You say I'm offensive because I believe my eyes and I say I see a woman, not a man. You call me thick and racist for not wanting to be a part of a rich man's club in Europe or a globalist new world order with no soul or guts or heart. You throw at me the slave trade. You tell me my five-year-old grandson is to blame. You point your brand and accusing intolerant fingers and tell me to hang my head in shame. I'm free to have opinions as long as they fall in line with yours. I can fly my banners high and proud as long as you support that cause. You have to be right all the time. Yours is the only way. I have to like the things you like, be they black, trans, left or gay. It makes no difference if I tell you I'm not the things for which you accuse because once you've made up your closed off minds, I'm always going to lose. I have black friends, so you're still a racist. Homophobic, but I've shared beds with gay men. I'm an anti-Semite, but the Rothschilds is the richest banking family in this world and that's got nothing to do with them being Jewish and everything to do with them being multi-billionaires really can influence the dollar, pound and yen. You sip your Pinot Grigio in trendy bars down in the smoke, looking down your noses with loathsome contempt at billions of working class folk. Well, I've come here to tell you that you have had your time because the winds of change are blowing and bells of freedom soon will chime because my class, my fucking class, is waking up and stirring and we're going to peacefully attack. We're going to breach those PC walls of segregation that have divided gay, straight, white and black. I've got no malice in my heart. I don't judge people on their sex or creed or race. I don't speak ill of absolute cunts behind the back. Not even the bloke who murdered me dad. I just tell him to the face. So to all you branding liberals who won't allow debate, I hate no man or woman. I just want the right to hate. I want the right to hate like I want the right to love. I want to like and dislike what I want to like and dislike and be able to vocalise it, bruv. I'm not responsible for slavery and I'm not taking any blame because the white privilege built on black slavery, you say that I enjoy, well, Beyonce, Jay-Z, Oprah Winfrey, Rihanna, Floyd Mayweather, Alicia Keys, Jamie Foxx, Barack Obama, et al. All enjoy the same. Beyonce spent $87 million on a house just through shaking the ass while me and our last sit at home lamenting about ways to pay the fucking gas. And I don't see too much white privilege in a system that lets East European immigrants or wounded soldiers live in cardboard boxes. Why do Black Lives Matter and progressives fail to see not all white folks live in stately homes chasing fucking foxes? I'm not homophobic, transphobic or anything phobic you see because I don't fear sex or race or gender. I just won't bow down to your PC. Don't confuse my use of slang with racism and bigotry. Don't confuse my rejection of your shite with spite. Don't naturally assume I'm thick and racist because I'm northern working class. I'm not. I'm articulate, sharp and bright. And I will not walk a minefield every time I open my mouth to speak. And I will not apologise for things I've glibly said or spoken tongue-in-cheek. So shape up or fuck off with your madness because I'm going to bring you down. I'm going to bring working class people together. Muslim, Christian, white and brown. I'm going to bring those globalist walls of Jericho crashing on your brainwashed liberal feet. And I'm going to blow my loving, inclusive, un-PC fanfare. And you communist, fascist, capitalist, socialist, left, right, Catholic, Protestant, Muslim, Christian, black, white, gay, straight, male, female, leave, remain, against COVID-19, for COVID-19, against vaccinations, for vaccinations, democratic, republican, north, south, 
divides, I will defeat. You've divided us, the working classes, and you've conquered us, and you've fucking laughed at us at the top. So I'll come onto my mate's programme to tell you, right now to this camera, it's time for your shit to fucking stop. Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kisson. And this is a show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people. Our brilliant guest today is one of our favourite comedians working in the UK today who finds himself in a spot of bother. Chris McGlade, welcome to Trigonometry. All right, Les, are we doing all right? It's good to have <laughs> you, man. Uh, uh, we have known you for a while and you and I particularly go back a long way. But uh, tell everybody who doesn't know you, who are you? How are you where you are? What has been your journey through life that leads you to be sitting here talking to us? Well, um, basically, I've been a comedian for 33 years. I, um, and for most of that time, I've been a working men's club comedian and uh, working on the, in, the, in the social clubs in and around the north, all over the north of England. But I have had forays into the um, comedy circuit, you know, over the years. And I've done that under my own steam, you know. And I don't know how these people on that in the main middle class progressive kind of like comedy circuit take me. I've always tried to amalgamate both styles of, of humour really. So I've got this like unique approach and um and I and I do that not only in the middle class circuit here in London on the comedy circuit, but also in those working men's clubs. So I've I've been doing that um for some time now to great effect and my polit my comedy's become more political over the last eleven or twelve years uh, in particular because I fought a, a political campaign in Redcar that was totally corrupted, really. Um, we exposed all kinds of things and changed the law in this uh, in this country regarding open spaces. And after that, it was it was kind of like my comedy when I'd seen like the level of of corruption and things locally. My my comedy had to reflect that, if you know what I mean. I had to start speaking out about things that I, f I felt were bullshit. And, um, and like I say, I've tried to do that in that middle-class comedy circuit style, but I've always tried to stay true to my working men's club roots and that quick, you know, one-liner style of, of comedy. And, um, and I don't work very much. <laughs> <laughs> but... Yeah. but uh, I guess I've never been in comedy for the, for the money, Joe, and I've never certainly been one that's... I mean, I, I appreciate it. I've got to make a living, but it's always been the love of it. And over, over the last 11 years or so, it, it's, it's wanting to say things, if you know what I mean, mm -hmm. that, uh, that I think stinks. And, uh, and I've been trying to do that more, more and more over over the years, you know. and it's But like I say, 32 years, well, 33 years this year I've been a comedian. Mm. And when I met you, a friend, mutual friend of ours, when we were at Dead Edinburgh Festival uh, at the same time, I didn't know who you were, I went to see you uh, in the caves. Yeah, and yeah. You had this massive room, it was a 120-seater, I think, big. And the day I saw you, there was nine people in, one row, and I sat there, watched you for an hour, played to nine people. I think two of them were German tourists who couldn't understand a word. <laughs> and I came back again because that's how good it was. And that's the thing that 
you do is you combine, as you say, good jokes, really good funny jokes. You hate political correctness. Mm. And you talk about the political things that are happening in the world today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I just, I'm, I'm trying to, what I've always wanted to do is I've always wanted to bring both sides of comedy together. So, like, I think at the moment, comedy's too imbalanced. It's too uh, top-heavy in one direction. The whole of the industry these days is controlled by middle-class progressive kind of people, whether it be agents, whether it be promoters, uh, bookers, the comedy clubs, certainly. And, And I've been trying to sort of, like, even things up to a certain degree, if you know what I mean. Um, by by bringing working class traditional working class humour into these places, but mixing it with the kind of humour that you would find in a comedy club. Because I think <coughs> working class comedians um, of or working men's club comedians they never they never get a look in. When was the last time you saw a working men's club comedian? I know stacks of lads on the circuit who are really funny men, and they would never get a look in at live on the Apollo or, or any of these kind of game shows or panel shows or whatever, do you know what I mean? Because because they're not they don't put forward the humour. They don't do the humour that these people who control comedy like. And it, and it's it's a discrimination in a way for me. It is a discrimination. Why and why do you think it is, Chris, that they don't wanna put these types of comedians on telly and all the rest of it? Because they don't like them. That's as simple as that. You know, it's like it's like it's like the people who control comedy, they have their perceptions of what comedy should be, and it isn't what's in the working men's clubs. They think it's hack, they think it's all dated, and perhaps it is. But it appeals to millions and millions and millions of people. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I'm listen, I mean, I wear this unashamedly all the time, right? I've got, like, loads of T-shirts that say working class man. I'm absolutely proud of my class, right? And I'm even more proud of my class by virtue of the fact that we don't get a seat at the table. Do you know what I mean? And... And everything is controlled by this middle class, like progressive mindset. And when I sit in the club, or when I sit in the pub with the lads, they'll say, "Oh, did you see that comedian?" And they tell you, "Fucking rubbish." You know, didn't understand him. You know, what what he talking about? Didn't wasn't even funny. And they say, "You see, these people control comedy. You put these comedians on the television because they like them, but they're not. They don't necessarily have broad appeal. And I'm not slagging any comedian off. I'm just saying it's it's wrong that it's only one kind of comedy that's been foisted on the public of this country time and time and time again, because there are millions of working class people, right, who love the comedians who go in the working men's clubs, and yet their taste in comedy isn't catered for on television." Or, or anything else, you know? And I, and I just... I think I've tried to be a bit of a Trojan horse, <laughs> really. Taking one set of, one kind of humour into a comedy club and taking the comedy club... Because it's a flip thing with me, because I always try and take that middle-class comedy kind of comedy that I, I do, I try and take that into the working men's clubs mm. or in a sportsman's dinner too, do you know what I mean? So it's it's balanced. But I can I, and see that I've been a comedian for 33 years, so I can I can do different kinds of comedy. If you want me to be over the top, I'll be over the top. If you want me to be clean, I'll be clean. And Chris, what would you say to those people who, like these middle-class liberals, who go, well, hang on, you know, you just want to go on stage, you know, do Bernard Manning-esque style jokes from the 1970s. Society's moved on and you need to accept that. Well, I, 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 it's not about doing Bernard Manning style jokes. 
when you watch these guys on the after dinner speaking circuit, you know they are funny guys. They don't they don't do Bernard Manning style material. That, once again, it's like a, a small minded view of these comedians. You know, it's like I've I've said to a couple of comedy, comedy critics, when was the last time you ever went into a working men's club? <laughs> and, and reviewed and reviewed and reviewed a comedian. When was the last time you mm. you, you, you know? And and they haven't, have they? You know? And I just it, it's it's just the discrimination. And 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 I I think that working class people are discriminated in lots of ways, but especially in comedy. Especially in comedy, you can get if you're working class and you and and you do the the style of comedy that that you know everybody else does in the in, in the comedy clubs. That's fine, but if you if you do that traditional working class kind of humour that appeals to working class people, you got no chance. Well, this is why I was so happy because I, I you know I, I opened with the anecdote about how you and I first met when you you were having a rough time of it in terms of getting audience in and it wasn't easy even though your show was brilliant. And you are a brilliant comic. But last uh, time that Edinburgh happened, which is 2019, you did a show called Forgiveness, mm -hmm. which Francis and I both saw, uh, which was one of the best shows at the festival. You got, you sold out your room, you got brilliant reviews, and it got followed up with a run at the Soho Theatre. Mm -hmm. And you've been doing brilliantly on that front. And as of a couple of weeks ago, you were supposed to get your run at Soho Theatre, which is one of, for people out, outside of the UK, one of the biggest theatres in London, certainly like a taste-making kind of theatre mm. here. Um, and that didn't happen. No. Well, <laughs> yeah, they've got cold feet. And, um, Why is that? Well, I mean, it's been, been in the press to a certain degree, and I, I, don't, think, I don't think it's over <laughs> as far as the press goes, but... Um, so I, I, I wrote this show about my dad's murder. My dad was uh, strangled and, and set on fire in uh, 2011. And, um, and I more or less instinctively forgave the man who uh, murdered him. Uh, I thought it was the way to go. I felt that was right for me. Uh, my father was a very um, forgiving person person, never held any grudges, also a very funny person and completely on PC, but big hearted, always big hearted. And um, I mean, I had some counselling and so on and so forth. And then we, uh, well, it's when I was doing uh, Northern Monkey in Edinburgh in 2018, I'd had this uh, like panic attack and I ran off the stage. <laughs> I didn't know what was, what was going on really. And I got back to my digs and I wrote this poem called Blood Beneath Your Nails and I realised then that there was stuff that uh, that I had to exercise even though I'd had counselling, you know. And I thought to myself, well, you know, I'm a comedian. You know, this, tell the story. And I always remember my mate Wilson Milton, one of the lads on the circuit, like, you know, I said, I'm going to do this show about old dad's murder, you know. And he went, wow, why are you? And I said, yeah. Uh, he said, are you going to make it funny? I said, I don't know yet, but I'll work on it, like, you know. <clears throat> so I, I came back from Edinburgh and I started to write just the stories, the anecdotes, and once again I mixed it with the traditional working men's club quick one-liner jokes that I've, I've been doing for, for so many years. And um, 
I took it to Edinburgh, and as you say, it just went off the scale. Like, you know, every night, apart from one, the first night, but even then, the Times came to see me on the first night. But after that first night, it just went through the fucking roof. <laughs> it was like, you know, there were like queues, like literally up three flights of stairs or two flights of stairs and out the, the city cafe. And uh, critically acclaimed across the board. Uh, people were hailing it as a masterpiece, uh, a masterclass in comedy, genius and all of this, you know. Some people were saying it's like it's like one of the most important comedy shows because it, it didn't just address the issue of, of forgiveness and, and tolerance and everything else. It also addressed the issues of race because, you know, our dad was from a very multicultural uh, area in Middlesbrough and stuff, you know. And, and, and it just... It just swept the board at Edinburgh, and then this uh, top promoter came to see it, and he just said, "This is fantastic! Like you know, never seen anything like it." So uh, he got me in the Soho Theatre, and, uh, and just for people who don't understand, you've been at it for at this point for thirty-one, well, thirty-two years, years this, yeah. and this is your dream coming true. Well, Finally, yeah. you're getting recognition. Well, do you know what it, what it was? <laughs> this was the thing I thought was, you see, because like gigs were few and far between, mm. right, on the yeah. comedy comedy circuit for the reasons I believe I stated at the start, top of the interview, at the mm. start of the interview. So like when I got all this like acclaim and everything, and bearing in mind, I mean, I'd been to Edinburgh three times, 17, 18 and 19, mm. and every time I'd gone there, I'd been like critically acclaimed across the board, but this was mega critical acclaim, yeah. mm. you know. Yeah. And, uh, and it and it was like, it was like, for me personally, that recognition was like saying to these people who control comedy, look, you know, this is this is me. Do you know what I mean? I felt so proud of that. This is me as a working men's club comedian. I've done. I've, this is this is the level of my writing. This is the level of my comedy. I can do what you do, and I can do, or I, I can do what you want me to do, and I can do this in the working men's clubs. I can do this. And it, I was so proud of myself at, at that moment in time because I, leading up to that, the work had been so non-existent, really. I'd, I'd felt many times like like just jacking it all in. Of course, when we went into the Soho Theatre, uh, I mean, that was just like everything for me, man. You know what I mean? I mean, to, I mean the Soho Theatre, for anybody who doesn't know out there, is so cutting edge. You know, they don't have any shite in there. And... Uh, and I was I just, don't know about that, mate. But <laughs> <laughs> well, no, well, well, I know, I know, I know what you mean. But, but in in their eyes, if yeah, you know yeah, what I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you yeah, understand yeah. what they're I mean? They're not compromising on yeah. things. They get who they want to get. Exactly. In. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and like, like I'm, I'm just like floating on air. And then I got a, a call off off uh, off the promoter, and he said, uh, right, um, they want you. They really want you, because they came to see me in Edinburgh twice. You know, the programmer came to see me and then this girl came to see me on the last night and it was just wonderful. And, and they said, they really want you. And I said, okay, that's brilliant. Yeah, but they want you to take something out. And I said, well, what do they want me to take out? Well, they said, well, they don't want you to use the word packy and they don't want you to use the word chinky, right? So my first instinct was, I said, tell them to fuck off, right? Uh, Chris, before you go any further, just give people a little bit of the context because yeah, yeah, some yeah, people I'm, are hearing I'm, this for I'm, the first I'm, time. Yeah, I know you're waking up to it, but I'm just saying this because some people will make assumptions based on what you've said. Yeah. You've said you're a working class comedian. You said they didn't want you to use those two words and they're going to assume that you were making fun of those No, groups. not at all. It was in context of the... It, the, the, it was right. In, it was in 
the words were used in the context of the 1970s. You were telling a story about your dad. Yeah, and the 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 slang and the words that were used in working class communities, multicultural working class communities, in the 70s and stuff when I when I was growing up with my father. So it was all in context, right? Right. And and we'd we'd like used or I'd used the words in, in Edinburgh and I'd stand innovations. Nobody, everybody understood the context. Mm, do you know right. what I mean? I mean, mm. the promoter, all the comedy critics that came to see it, they all knew it was in context and everything else. It wasn't just like using it gratuitously. That's what I mean. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't like that at all. So I said, right, okay. And my first instinct was to tell them to fuck off because that's, that's just me. Do you know what I mean? And, and stuff. So, and then, and then I thought, no, okay, then, right? Um... I mean, I was broke <laughs> and I needed a break. So I screwed my nut and I said, right, okay. And I'll take the words out, right? And I'll, and I'll replace them. But I'll also take the piss. I'll, I'll make fun of the fact that I've been censored. And the promoter said, that's fine, right? Anyway, we went there, did the, the, the four nights at the Soho Theatre last year. And I'd written this, <clears throat> maybe his 15-minute piece to, to, to put in the show. And it was all about... Um, Working class mentalities, right? And working class slang and working class jokes and working class humour. And how you can tell a joke and how you how you can use slang words without actually being racist or or whatever, like you know. And uh, and it worked just fantastically. I mean the, the director of the theatre came I mean I had like four shows and I got four stand innovations, right? Mm. The director of the theatre was there on the Friday night. And I did like an hour and 50 minutes. And I mean, after the show, it was, I, I, I like floated down the stairs back into the bar. And I always remember I was just late, late leaving the theatre. I was in the street and he ran out into the street and said, are you coming back? And I said, well, yeah, I'll be back here tomorrow night for my last show. And he said, no, hey, will you come back to the theatre and do like, you know, more shows? I said, well, of course, well, yeah. Hey, Constantine, how are you feeling? Good. And your mental health? I'm from Russia, we don't have mental health. Well, in the civilized world, we talk about our mental health and how we're feeling about our place in the universe. In the words of my uncle Vlad, that is why we will crush you. Well, he's two months away from a breakdown. For the rest of us, there's a number one mental wellness app called Calm that helps you to negotiate the tricky modern world. It's okay to need help sometimes, and Calm can provide support. Calm has been really useful for me. You can clear your head with guided daily meditations, improve your focus with Calm's curated music tracks, and drift off to dreamland with Calm's imaginative sleep stories, narrated by soothing voices like Killian Murphy and Stephen Fry. Oh, Killian, soothe me. Man up. Drink vodka, feel better. If you go to calm.com slash trigger, you'll get a limited time offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription, which includes hundreds of hours of programming. And new content is added every week. Over 1 million people around the world use Calm to take care of their minds. Yes, Trigonometry fans get special limited time promotion, 40% off premium subscription. Take advantage of this amazing offer. Go to calm.com forward slash trigger for 40% off unlimited access to Calm entire library. That's calm.com forward slash trigger. And uh, anyway, I finished the run and the run was just off the scale. You know, it was like just everything. I mean, I like that working men's club humor. 
it was it was it had the the middle class like political kind of observational kind of stuff. Do you know what I mean? It had poetry in it. It was also done in a way of telling a story. It was just everything. And after the run, uh, the promoter came back and he said, "Well, you know, they were just blown away by it." And they said, "You know, they want you to go and um, uh, on an extended run in June uh, in the main theatre part, I think, or the uh, exclusive cabaret room that they've got there, and um, and and they want to co-produce the show. I think they wanted to co-produce a tour. They wanted to film it and put it on pay-per-view and all this and the other, you know, blah blah blah." And it was just well, I was I was I I remember the morning I got the call. I was I was in this cafe in Redka, and the promoter for me, and I just I broke down and cried because it was it was just everything. Do you know what I mean? I'd actually I'd actually been recognised by the establishment, if you know what I mean. Mm. This establishment that never lets comedians like me in, right? Had recognised me and my worth. As a comedian, <laughs> and that meant everything to me. That meant the world to me. If I didn't make a penny for the shows, and I didn't make any money in Edinburgh, and I didn't make any money from the first Soho Theatre run. But if I never made a penny from the, the run that they wanted me to do, it wouldn't have made a fucking blind bit of difference to me. Because these people, or that mindset, that mind, it's not people, it's the mindset that had tried to keep me out or had kept me out, had said, we think you're the dog's bollocks. And it, and it just, it was just everything to me. It was 32 years of being booed off, paid off, I'd paint glasses thrown at you, fucking challenged with knives. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Just everything, you know, echoed the whole lot. And then I was this establishment that that this mindset that controls comedy and said, "We think you're great." And they said to the promoter, "Here, um, we had people coming into this theatre that nobody that we never had before." And the promoter said, "What do you mean, working class people?" And he went, yeah, yeah. I felt like Braveheart, you know what I mean? William, they're coming down from the hills and the hundreds and the thousands. <laughs> <laughs> they were coming down from fucking Newcastle and were coming over from South Yorkshire. They came down from Nottingham, from clubs where I'd been in Nottingham all my life. They were coming over from Wolverhampton, up from the up from the, the southwest. They were coming from all over the place. And I thought, and just to see me in the Soho Theatre, and, uh, and that just meant... The absolute world, and I mean, I played the comedy store in Hollywood, and I played on the main stage in this massive room years ago, two thousand three, two thousand four, and I had to come home because my mum was dying um, of, a, of a heart attack. Well, she had a heart attack, but she had heart failure and, and cancer and stuff, and and so that ended that one. You know what I mean? And then, um, and then, I was in Billy Elliot in the West End. Uh, in the Victoria Palace Theatre, biggest break to date, and the old fellow was murdered. And that really, after that, you know, they put me in a, 
<laughs> room at the top of the theatre, so my bad vibes didn't like rub off on any of the rest of the cast, which is fair enough. Um, and that was the end of that one, really. And I, but like this one, it was like, well, nothing's going to stop me now. Not nothing possibly can stop me because I know my own worth. I say I have very low self-esteem, and you know I'm like that's through just like being bullied as a child, really. But like, I I, I know I've got what it takes as a, as a comedian, you know. And um, and I thought, well, nothing's going to stop it now. What can stop it? Because even Netflix were interested, you know. A Hollywood film director. Well, like, he's a British film director, but he's directed Hollywood movies and he's worked with Robert De Niro and all this. He wanted to write a screenplay, you know. There was a, a Canadian TV company, a Canadian stroke North American TV company wanted to do uh, a series about me on the, on the theme of forgiveness. I think they wanted me to go around North America talking to people who'd suffered murder like me and, and discuss with them people, other victims of murder, discuss the, the, the concept of forgiveness, you know. And like two weeks after, bump, lockdown, everything stops. Gutted. Absolutely gutted. Been gutted ever since. I mean, that's very understandable, just uh, and in particularly lockdown, everything stops. But then we fast forward, and you've got your, sh your run at the Soho. Yeah, yeah, well, you see, the thing is, I, I, I kept in touch with, with the, the director of the theatre. He, he said in August, you know, you definitely know a mix and stuff, and then I never read any more. And then I let go of myself. Like, you know, I've, <clears throat> when we, I, I'd had these two shows planned uh, of forgiveness in my hometown in Redcar. And it was like 90, 90 tickets uh, for the show. At first, it was just going to be one show. And then uh, it sold out within an hour. And then so we put and we put another show on, and then that had sold by the following day. And there was people flying over from Ireland and flying up from uh, Bristol, and they were coming down from Newcastle, and, and they were coming up from the Midlands, all to come to Redcar to see the show. There was even two women from America saying if we could get a flight, we'd come and fly over from America to see the show. And I'm like, wow. And then lockdown was called again. And that just like, just like, like finished me off really. I started drinking like loads, let myself go, didn't clean the house. You know what I mean? Just completely let myself go, grew a massive beard. Just wasn't bothered, wasn't interested, you know? And then I got a call and about the end of January and the, and the promoter said, you know, the theatre says you're still in the mix, that's great, and so on and so forth. And so, you know, we'll be getting some dates soon, and then that's great. Of course, nothing came. Month, weeks went by, weeks went by, weeks went by, and nothing. And then um, maybe about six or seven weeks ago now, six weeks ago, I got a call and they said, oh, the promoter said, basically, uh, they need to talk to you. And I said, why? And they said, because the think your show is anti-Semitic. So I said, right, okay. <laughs> What's anti-Semitic like? They said, well, somebody's alerted them to your poem, The Right to Hate. So I said, oh, okay then. See, in The Right to Hate, there's the there's the a verse that says, you know, I've got black friends, so you're still a racist, homophobic, but I've shared beds with gay men. I'm an anti-Semite, but the Rothschilds is the richest banking family in the world you know, really can influence. And that's got nothing to do with them being Jewish and everything to do with them being multi-billionaires really can influence the dollar pound and yen. 
and that's the, the verse that caused the controversy. It caused controversy last year when it went when it when the poem went viral. I mean, the poem went viral to like tens of millions of people. Now, I understand the anti-Semitic trope, you know, that like uh, Zion, Zionists and the Rothschilds and all that, you know, control World Banking, and that's what Hitler based his his attack on, you know, before the war and all of this. But my that section of the poem wasn't about that at all. My that section of, of my poem was about the middle class or in the main middle class progressive liberal mindset versus the working class mindset. Because in my working class existence, with my working class friends, they don't understand how you can be racist and have a black wife or a black husband or a black partner or a black friend, right? And they don't understand how you can be homophobic and have gay friends, right? And they don't understand how, as the richest banking family in the world, even though they're not as big a players as they used to be, how they they can't influence stock markets or currencies. And that's what it was about. It was, And that's what basically what the poem is about. It's about... Working men, working class mentality, as opposed to that middle class progressive mentality, and it like it's like, for me, that middle class progressive mentality is riding roughshod over everything, and it's not giving our mentality any kind of, any kind of airtime really. Do you know what I mean? Yep. I had this fucking dickhead online, right? saying that, you know, he'd put this post on Facebook and he described us as working people. Now, I've noticed that coming in more and more over the years, this this term, working people, very ambiguous, working people. And I, I, I responded to him and said, hey, mate, you missed a word out there. <laughs> and he said, have I? And I said, yeah, you have. I said, you missed the word class, mate, right? And he started going on fucking quoting Karl Marx at me, you know, listening at the other right, and so on and so forth. I said, hey, Save all your fucking middle class bullshit for me. I said, I don't give a toss, right? I said, you have to have the word class. And basically what he was saying was, if you've got a job, you work in class. Fucking prick. Idiot, right? And this is what these people don't get, right? Because working class people, it's not just about having a fucking job, right? We're, we're our own culture. We have our own way of speaking. We have our own mindset. We have our own thought processes, you know? We think differently. It's a culture. Working class is a culture, white and black, you know? We go on holidays to different places than, than middle-class people. They even smoke different fags. I said this in my 2018 show, you know, working-class people, by and large, will smoke Embassy Regal. Oh, my fair. And, 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 and middle-class will be smoking fucking Mar Marlboro. Do you know what I mean, Marlboro Light? It's, it's, it's not just about having a job being working-class. It's a culture, right? And it's a mentality and it's a mindset and I feel very passionate about it and it's getting completely, completely road roughshod over by this progressive, in the main, middle class mentality. And it has to stop. It has to stop because it's, because it's discriminating so much. And I don't give a flying fuck if people attack me online and say this and that and the other, right? But I will not stop championing my class, my culture, no matter what colour you are, because it's a, it's a culture. Being working class is its own culture.
And that is what the right to hate is about. Right. It's about our culture being dominated by these people who tell us, you can say this, but you can't say that. But you can say that, but you can't say this. And you will think that. And if you, and if you don't, oh, yes, and, and then the prejudging, that's what the whole thing is, you know what I mean? You're racist, you're this, you're that, the other, the other. Well, I'm sorry, I'm not. Because I left school with two O-levels, you know, or three O-levels. One was in English, one was in art, and one was in fucking truancy. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm not the best educated man. Over, I, I, I left school at 16 years old. My English teacher, when I was 14, said, you, McGlade, are Oxford or Cambridge material. Do you know that? And I laughed at him and I told him to fuck off, <laughs> right? Because he had these deadheads behind me. And he said to me, first of all, don't tell me to fuck off because you're an English teacher. And second of all, don't tell me to fuck off because you will have an experience when you're older, son. And you will realise what I've said is true. And I had that experience last year when I wrote this poem called Will She Fly? And when I read it on this men's mental health station, radio station in Middlesbrough, these guys were like, wow. And that's when I had the realisation that, yeah, I was Oxford and Cambridge material, actually, right? But that wasn't my path. I went straight into a steel mill when I was 16 years old. I was, you know, my professors were like Ernie Buckton and Colin Alley and Terry Taggart, lads who, who worked in the mills and the cranes and the, and the stock take and, and, and the stock uh, yards and everything else. Do you know what I mean? They were my professors. They were my teachers. You know, that was that was the the route I went down. And so I've tried to educate myself over the course of my life about different things. And I might have said things that, that in the past have been anti-Semitic or racist, but that's not because out of malice because there's no malice in me, right? That's out of ignorance, really, and I've tried to learn as much as I can to put those things right. Do you understand? I do, yeah. But, but this, the whole poem is, is about de- defending working-class mentality and culture, mm. you know, as opposed to this progressive... I'm not even going to say left because it's not left; it's centrist. They're not. They're not. They're not left. They're not the traditional. I was a member of the Labour Party when I was 17 years old. You know what I mean? Signing on picket lines and stuff. I mean, like a, a, a proper traditional working class socialist. But I don't identify with the left now because it's not. They're too busy. Branding people and using ID politics to shut people up and, and do people down and, and all of that, you know. And that's what the poem was about. We're being dominated by this mindset that is completely alien to ours. And we're, and we're not allowed anywhere back at all. You know what I mean? We're not allowed anywhere back. It's a really, really powerful point, And I'm so glad that we've got you on the show to express that. There's something that I push back against a lot because it's the term white privilege and I feel that it's used as against as a weapon against working class people and particularly working class men to get them to shut up and not have an opinion. I can't... I, but Francis, I, I, listen, mate, my family came from Ireland. My family are immigrants, right? My family came from Ireland at the turn of the last century I mean, they were, they were basically land slaves, you know, picking potatoes or just working for a pittance. Do you know what I mean? Like indentured labour, just like like nothing. And they came over here. I mean, my uncle, my auntie died of cancer last year. My uncle gave me some photographs that go back to like Victorian times of my family. And I'm, I, I cried when I saw them. I felt this affinity to them straight away. I mean, they look like the Peaky Blinders, you know what I mean? My, my, my great-great-granddad and his two brothers are sat in his badge on the tees. And like, I fucking broke down and cried. 
This is my blood. These men were fucking working in fields. They had never had anything. They had fuck all. And they came to this country with fuck all. And I've got fuck all. Nothing. And, I, and, and those people, those people had no privilege whatsoever. They were Irish Catholics and they were, and, and they were regarded as being shit. They used to have signs in, in restaurants, didn't they? No blacks, no dogs, no blacks and no, Cath no Irish. And, and that's, that was the thing. They were, they were, it was a, the same kind of thing. So I, I don't go with all that white privilege shit. Do you know what I mean? Privilege isn't about your colour. It's about how much money you have. That's what sets you apart. That's what gives you privilege. I mean, I love Marcus Rashford. I think Marcus, what Marcus Rashford has done for working class kids in this country is, is exemplary, right? It's, it's fantastic. The lad, the, for me, the lad should be, he should get a, a, a gong or a, a knighthood or whatever because he's tried to champion working class children. But do you think if he wasn't a multi-millionaire centre forward for Manchester United in England that he would have got to Boris Johnson or been listened to? He would have just been another fucking scrot living in Manchester, wouldn't he? Nobody would have listened to him. It's not about your, your colour. It's about your standing, your, your wealth. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And, and that, I, I can't go with the white privilege, you know? I've been kicked shit out of incels before in Newcastle. I've been stopped by the police on the streets, walking home, never done anything wrong, and I'm white. And there's millions of white people, you know, and this is, this is one of the things, you know, it's not just black people that are, that are trapped badly, it's white people too, you know. But getting back to the thing with the Soho yeah, right. Theatre, yeah. when they told me, when the agent said they wanted, you know, the, the poem was anti-Semitic, and I've gone on the houses there to explain about the yes, poem. Yeah. They said they want to talk to you. So I said, right, ah, you know, I've got nothing to hide. I'll talk to them. And so I, I phoned them up. We had this like three-way conversation, me, the director, the programmer. And I, I, I explained what I've explained to you, you know. And, uh, and, then I, and then I said to them, they said, oh, you know, about the, you know, will you, you, you know, you, you, you took certain things out before and blah, blah, blah. And I said, yeah. I said, if that's, look, if that's what you want me to do, right? If you want me to, if you want me to take out that line, because they, 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 they kept on stressing that, you know, we can't be seen to offending people and we can't do this. And I said, right, okay, if you don't want to offend people, right? I said, I will take out that, that line. Chris, just pause there for one second. Yeah. Just for one second. These are people who run a comedy theatre. Yeah. And their primary concern in dealing with you after you sold out a run to standing ovations last year, is they don't want to offend people. Yeah. Well, that, that's, that's what they said. They said, we, you know, we can't be seen to be offending people and we have to be diverse and so on and so forth. And I said, right, okay. I'll take out that, I'll take out that section. But I said, but like I did before, when I took the piss when you censored me before, mm -hmm. mm. I'll take the piss this time. And they said, great. And then they said, we would like to, we'd like you to speak to this Jewish lady. Right, and she used to be the creative director of the theatre, and I said, "Right, that's fine. I'll I'll do that." You know, I I, I wanted to, you know, not because I want endorsement from the, the the Jewish community, but you could always call me up, mate. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you a free pass. Yeah. Well, mate, the, that ain't worth shit. Do, do all the Holocaust jokes you want, mate. No, <laughs> unfortunately, you're not no, you're not in the position to book me in the Soho Theatre. That is unfortunate. But she used to be the creative director of the Soho yeah. Theatre, and she, I think she 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 was uh, the director of, of the London Jewish Museum, and 
And I wanted to talk to him, not because like I said I wanted an endorsement from the Jewish community, but I just wanted to, to, to smooth the waters to say, look, you know, I know that, I know that it was almost like the, the, they wanted me to be educated, you know, in what, what that reference meant. But really, when I think about it, that was like so condescending once again, because I understood the anti-Semitic trope mm. of Jewish banking and, and everything. I understood that already. But what they didn't understand and what they weren't prepared to be educated in is that working class mentality, do you know what I mean? Mm. Mm. That doesn't understand how one of the richest banking families in the world, and it's got nothing to do with them being Jewish, just the fact they're multi-billionaires, they must be able in some way to, to affect currency or stock market. So how did that conversation go with her? Well, they, that, that never happened because, because we, we all left the, the, the phone call. It was... Uh, me, the, the director and the programmer, it was brilliant. And then, and then um, they said, right, we'll sort the, the the phone call out. And Mike Lee, who's my agent for acting and for uh, literary things, I mean, he's Jewish. He's he's a member of the campaign against anti-Semitism, right? He was going to sit in on on the conversation, right? He was emailing, I was emailing, the promoter was emailing, we're all emailing, nothing. And then they came back, not last Thursday, but uh, Thursday before, when the promoter phoned me, he said, I got some bad news for you. And I said, what's that, Lee? And he said, well, you know, they're dropping you, they don't want you. And I, I, do you know what it is? I was disappointed, but I wasn't hurt. I was more or less expecting it because I knew I just you get a feeling, don't you? Yeah. I'm not psychic, but I mean, I got you know you got a feeling. I got a feeling about it, and I just thought to myself, nah, I can't go with that one, you know. And um, I mean, so why do you think that happened? Because it's the same show. Yeah, you've it, already done this show at the theatre, yeah. right? So if they're concerned about offending people, the show's the same. Yeah. The theatre's the same. So what's happened in between? Well, like I say, because somebody had alerted them to the fact that this line was anti-Semitic and everything else. And so when they watched the show, they were fine. But the moment someone on social media alerted them to it, well, I don't, then know it was, I, I don't see. I don't know who alerted them, so yeah. I don't know. I mean, yeah, okay. maybe I don't know. Maybe maybe I've got an enemy up there, or somebody who's jealous, or whatever. Mm. You know what I mean? And and said, "Oh, what do you think about this?" I don't. I don't know. I don't yeah. know. That's 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 out of my control. Right. But it was the exact same show. They've got four standard innovations, and suddenly they said it was offensive. And and like Mike Lee, as I say, he's Jewish himself. So he, he, they phoned him up and he said, well, Chris was going to take that part out and replace it with something else. And they came back and said, yeah, but but the poem, The Right to Hate, is out there online and it's gone viral to millions of people all around the world. So you are, untou you are untouchable now because the poem is out there you can't do a show at the theatre because the poem is out there. Even if you don't do the, I, that I, poem, I, 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 I don't. I don't know that. I don't. I don't know if it's just the poem or if it's if the if the poem is is has destroyed things for me. But you see that when the I can't, oh God, I can't describe to you. Right, I wrote this thing. When I wrote the right to hear, it was in two thousand and seventeen. Right, I woke up one morning. Our last was going to work. And I was just like laid in bed, tossing myself off, right, trying to go, get back to sleep. <laughs> trying to get back to sleep. Anyhow, I went downstairs, made a cuppa, right, got some biscuits, come back up the stairs, got back into bed, right, and I just, I, I always have a, some paper and a pen, 
next to the bed. Because I, I don't know why. I get me best inspiration when I'm sleeping or when I wake up. I've got this line. You tell me what I can't say. And I'm not, I, I shit you not, right? Tell me what I can't say. And that was it. It was off. Mm. I wrote that poem in about four minutes. And it just wouldn't stop, right, until I'd finished. And when I finished, I realised it was finished. And I put it online in 2018 after Edinburgh because I used it in my Northern Monkey show, which is also critically acclaimed. Great show. Yeah. Right, and so, and so people had seen it. We didn't do much on, online. Then 2019, this ex-Special Forces fellow from Newcastle He'd seen it on YouTube, shared it to his Facebook page, and all of a sudden it started to go through the roof. And in two weeks, it had about 850,000 views, which is great, just before I was going to Edinburgh, right? When we show forgiveness, this is 2019. And then, of course, last year, I don't know why, all of a sudden, overnight, it had like 600,000 views, and then it was like a million and a half. And then Facebook... Facebook sort of like, is it shadow banded or something like this? And there was no more views. So I went outside... The Blast Furnace, again, because I filmed it, the, the original one, outside the Blast Furnace, and I'll bit of slag. And I filmed it again. I brought, up, brought it up to date. And I clarified, I clarified, because in the original, it's, uh, it doesn't mention the, the thing about the Rothschilds being multi-billionaires, but I thought, right, I'll clarify that point. I'll put that point in, you know what I mean? And, and clarify that people know that it's not coming from like an anti-Semitic place. I'm just coming from a fact of how can these people who are multi-billionaires not be able to, have, you know, able to affect banks? So I clarified it, I updated it. And that just flew. I mean, Isaiah Washington in, in America, famous actor, he got all of it. It was all over his Instagram. I had people, uh, teachers, professors from Italy saying, can we teach this to our students in, in class? Tens of millions of people. I had people in, in Morocco. I had people in Israel. I had people in Nigeria and Ghana, South Africa, all over Europe. America was just like, like wildfire, Canada, Everywhere, Scandinavia, the whole world, right? And I was like, well, emotional again because I'm, I'm just like a normal working class bloke, and it was too much for me to fucking take in. Do you know what I mean? Like, like, like the it was it's so intense. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Like it was like what the, what the fuck? Have I, I felt frightened. I felt intimidated. I felt as though I was in like a fishbowl, and everybody was looking at me. You know what I mean? And then I had this idea. I thought to myself, right, I could, I could do this using all these people. So we did a global version. And, and I did it. I mean, I, I don't have a computer. Don't have anything like that. So I made this video, the right to hate global version, using 150-odd people from around the world, from Nigeria and Kenya and Ghana and South America, Peru, Argentina, Brazil, everywhere, right? I did it all on my mobile phone. They sent me they sent me lines to the poem on my mobile phone. And I sent them to this guy who make who was like a filmmaker. And he put them all together and we put the we put the finished version out there and it didn't do as much as the the original. I thought it was better. You know, even the the the, the part where you know about the Rothschilds, like Jewish people did, did those parts, did those lines, you know? And so it, it's become, the poem has become a global phenomena. And I never expected that. I didn't intend it. I didn't ask for it. I didn't ask for the attention. I get like thousands of people sending me friend requests all the time. And I think, well, what? I'm not famous. I'm not a star. 
Do you know what I mean? I haven't got no money. I'm on the verge of going under. You know, I don't have any possessions in my house or the house I sleep in. I have a chair and a bed. That's it. I don't feel worthy of this attention. Do you know what I mean? But the attention's there now. And because the attention's there, the theatre turned around to the promoter and said, or my agent, Mike Lee, and said, well, it doesn't matter because it's out there online. And I, I, I mean, I, I've always been a, a fighter, not in terms of like physically, but like with my wits. I fight with my wits. You know, when I when I fought the, the local authority in Redcar over the issue of the corrupted housing estate, you know, I fought with my wits. And I thought to myself, well, what, what am I going to do here? You know, I have to do something to fight back. And uh, and and so I just put the, the post on my Facebook page, just saying. Basically, I'd been banned by the theatre and, and I couldn't believe it and nobody else could believe it really because it would already been in there and done right. massive things. So, and and, so and I mean, and I Let mean, me ask you again though, why do you think that's happened? I, I, Is there something... Well, from what I can gather, it can be, it, 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 the decision came from above the director of the theatre. I think they might have a, a board or a, you know, a group that controls the theatre. I don't know. I don't know, but I think that's where it where it came from. I think there are forces at work without being a conspiracy theorist. But I mean, you know, that's why I'm I'm grateful to you guys for inviting me onto the program so like I can like put my side forward publicly because hey listen, right? I mean, the show never had one complaint. Everywhere it's gone, it's had standing ovations. Everywhere. Yep. When I was in the Soho last year, and there was a, uh, an actor there from Downton Abbey, he said, I'd never seen anything like it. People were queuing up to hug me. It set people on the road to forgiveness themselves. Other people who've suffered murder have seen the show, and it set them on the road to forgiveness. And not just like people have been set on the road to forgiveness, not just with, not just with big things, but with little things. One bloke said I hadn't spoken to his dad for 10 years and uh, over and out in the summit, really. And he said he's going to phone his dad and ask him to go for a beer. When I was in Edinburgh, there was a girl, she was outside the theatre and she was like looking and I was giving the flyers out. And she said, oh, I said, I'm coming, I'm trying to tell her what the show is about. She said, oh, I know what it's about. She said, uh, my brother committed suicide, like, you know. So oh, okay, then. She said, I don't know whether to come in or not. Might not be for me. I said, Well, it might be for you. I said, Just come in. I said, But there's no ask if you don't want to come in. That's right. So, anyway, you know, you're somewhere in Edinburgh. You, you, you have, you've only got so many, so many, so much time outside leafleting. So, I, I, we cut off time and I went down into the room, got the room was packed out, about to start, and all of a sudden the door opened and this girl's head came. Came out the door. I said, come on in, love. Come on in. She sat down and she fucking loved it. The show, the biggest thing for the show for me, last year in the Soho Theatre, see, I've always wanted to bring both sides of comedy together, as I say, because I think it's too top-heavy, right? But you had middle-class progressive people sat alongside working-class people and they were all laughing 
and they were all thinking whether they agreed or not together. And after the show, and this is the biggest compliment that I took away from that show, was that the promoters' staff came to see it, I think, on a Thursday night. And they're all young, trendy, uber-progressive, you know, young kind of liberal people. And they were all blown away by it. And they said it crosses so many divides, brings down so many barriers. Like, you know, it's promoting peace and tolerance and, and laughter and forgiveness, most of all forgiveness, never had one complaint. And so a show that's done that, you know, that yeah, uses uncompromising language in context with the times that it was set in, right? Has basically now been put into a position whereby we're struggling to get it out there. Like, cause I mean, the promoter said, like, if if pandemic if the pandemic hadn't happened, the promoter said if we'd have gone at the Saw Theatre, backed by popular demand, you would have had a tour. Do you know what I mean? Without question, without any question at all, you'd have had a tour. But now we're struggling to even find a venue for it to go in, which is a real shame. It is. Because, and I'll tell you why, right? Because I mean, I'm on Facebook all the time. It's the only thing I have to occupy myself. And apart from writing my poems and, and trying, I, I don't write comedy anymore because I haven't got the outlet for it. So there's no point in frustrating myself. I mean, I do write comedy every now and again, but not like I used to. And I, and I look at it and we are so divided now. In, in, it's, I mean, not just the thing with race, right? Not just the thing with race, but, but with this whole thing with the pandemic were divided by those who were afraid of COVID-19 and those who are unafraid of COVID-19, those who want to wear masks, those who don't want to wear masks, those who've been vaccinated, those who don't want to be vaccinated. And it's like, I mean, just coming down here on the train, it's like, like this all the time. As soon as you say anything, do you know what I mean? Because I'm not, if you want to get the vaccine or get jabbed, have it, right? But don't, don't, tell me that I have to have it. I mean, I, I felt heartbroken today because, I mean, my, my world has got smaller and smaller and smaller to the point now where basically I sit in the car all day in this, in this car park next to this baker's in mask near where I live and I sit there eating cake and drinking tea and writing. That's that's how small my life's got. So I, and I don't see anybody for most of the day. So, like, I'm, I, you know, I, I don't have to provide any, like, vaccine passport or anything like that, right? But, like, I am medically exempt from wearing a mask and from having the vaccine or the jab because uh, of medical conditions, pre-existing medical conditions that I have. And I was getting me back together and I thought to myself, I better take them letters, you know, from the doctor saying I was exempt. And that broke, that broke my heart. Because for me, that's like, that's like a really total, totalitarian regime, isn't it? where it's like, shows your papers to do this, you know. Shows your papers to do that. And, uh, you know, I, I put that on on Facebook, coming down on the train, and people say, oh, yeah, well, we live in London, we never do that. I said, y you missed the point. You missed the point. The point is, right, that I felt as though I had to take proof of my medical status in case I was refused entry to somewhere. 
It's a fucking, it, it's like, it's, it's like fucking mental. I'm going somewhere tomorrow and I got an email and they said, like, have you been double jabbed? You know, because, and I, I said, no, I haven't. I'm medically exempt, but you know, and I, and I think what is going on? You know, where, where, where are we going with all of this, you know? It's a very, very interesting point. There's a question that I really want to ask you. Your show is about forgiveness. I watched it, it was brilliant, it was powerful, it was haunting, it was incredibly funny as well. It was a perfect show. And you talked about that particular subject. Looking at what's happened to you, looking at what's happening in society, do you think we're losing the ability to forgive, Chris? Massively so. I told you I was going to cry. I mean, my emotions with this are all over the place and uh, and it's not showboating or anything like that. I'm, I'm walking around with this inside all the time and that's why I appreciate you guys inviting me down. We are all being set against each other, right? All of us, right? Black and white, different religions, depressed her, the shit up constantly, right? They're like, they're like the schoolyard bully, Anna. Do you know what I mean? He said he can have you, or he said he can have you. you know what I mean? oh, yeah, yeah. And the next thing, everybody's fighting and the school bully fucks off. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> or makes money in this case. Or, yeah, 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 exactly. And what it requires is both sides to get all of the school bully and knock his fucking head off. Do you know what I mean? That's what it requires. We're all being set against each other, the whole, the whole thing. And, and I, said, I said to the people at the theatre, I said, you know, the message of forgiveness and, and the themes of the show, right, are never more needed than now, you know? And I'm not saying that because I'm trying to sell a show or whatever. I just think that they are. And forgiveness is a very, very personal thing. It felt right for me, might not, might, might not feel right for you, might not feel right for him, but it felt right for me. Do you know what I mean? But if we can go somewhere to forgiving, you know? If I've upset anybody because of this poem, I've explained the thing, forgive me. You know? You can see, I'm, I hope you can see, I'm not a bad bloke. There's no, there's no malice in me. And this is one of the things I said to him, I said, I don't hate them. If I don't hate the man who strangled my dad's life away and set him on fire, why would I hate anybody because they were black or because they were Asian or because they were Jewish or because they were gay or whatever? I wouldn't. You just wouldn't, you know? And we, um, but in this country, in this world, it, 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 it's become like a really mean place. And I've seen that get worse over the last 18 months, you know. It, it, it's become like a fucking bear pit, hasn't it? Do you know what I mean? It's like a dog fight. Social media, when you said about, do you go on Twitter? I don't go on Twitter because it's too much of a toxic place and never knows. Facebook's a toxic, I mean, Facebook's bad enough, but Twitter's terrible, you know. But yeah, we, we do, we do lack forgiveness so much. And you know, not just from, from a viewpoint of me wanting to, to get, get recognition or, or get something for myself through the show. I think the, it's the message of the show that I want to take out there, you know? Because I've seen the power of it. I've seen the power of the show. Somebody said to me, it's one of the best comedy shows that I've, uh, that I've ever seen. And they're like a, a PR, like top PR person. 
And um, and when you get like some of the critics saying the things that they've said about it, then you know that it means something. It's an important. It's an important show. I don't know it being the, the best show, or the funniest show, or whatever, but it's one of the most important shows, you know, as a whole, because it confronts and takes on so many, tackles so many issues, all in the thing of my father's murder. Chris, it's been an incredible interview. Thank you so much for Thank coming Thank you very down. much. Uh, we always end our <laughs> interviews with one question. It's always, what's the one thing we're not talking about but we really should be. Class. Class. Stop discriminating against working class people. No matter what colour they are. Class. Don't be embarrassed about it. Everybody gets embarrassed. Oh, you know, they shy away from it, don't they? Uh, Someone you mentioned class. Oh, fucking people. <clears throat> Rear up. Stephanie McGovern from, from Middlesbrough. She's from Middlesbrough. She used to be the BBC's uh, business correspondent, I think. She said in The Guardian when she went for an interview for the BBC, she did brilliantly. And this guy came over and said, oh, that was fantastic. You know, we didn't think people like you were intelligent. And, and do you want to know what it was? The so When the Soho Theatre took the show, they said, oh, you know, they came from the promoter, he said, they really want you because they believe in diversity. <laughs> 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 they believe in... They believe, can you believe that? I mean, I, I put that in the show. They want you because they believe in diversity, right? So, and I'll say this unashamedly because we are. White working class people are the biggest social demographic in this country, right? But now they regard white working class people, right, as basically a minority. It's fucking incredible. It is incredible. And, and you know, and not... You saw what happened at the football match. That's a minority with the European uh, Championship final. It's a minority, tiny minority. But but they're trying to they're trying to desperately tar a whole class, a whole culture with that racist brush, and it's wrong. And they're trying to rob us of our culture, of our mentality, of who we are, of what we were. Perhaps even what we want to become, because we never we never get a look in. You tell me any any facet of our society that did uh, that is run by a working class person. I mean, even the Labour Party. I mean, the Labour Party. If if, if that doesn't show you how much working class people are discriminated against, if you had a black community group that was run by a white person, they'd be alone. If you had a gay community group that was run by a straight person, they'd be alone. If you had a Muslim group that was run by a Christian, they'd be Ellen, right? Or another religion, like if it was Hindu, it was run by a Jew or whatever, they'd be Ellen, right? In effect, the, the Labour Party is a working class community group and it's run by middle class progressive people. And that's why the working class have said, fuck you, because there's a massive disconnect there. And what they think and believe, or running the Labour Party, isn't what we think and believe. And that's why at the by-election in May in Hartlepool, right, for the first time in 57 years, my whole life, the people of Hartlepool returned a Tory MP. And when you think about it, right, when you think about it, we expect to be shit on by the Tories. We expect that. 
but we don't expect to have our own shit on us. And we don't expect our own to look down the fucking noses at us. Do you know what I mean? And that's what we're getting. Let's talk about class, shall we? Let's have a working class leader of the Labour Party. I'm up for the job. <laughs> Chris, thanks for coming on. My pleasure. I've loved every single second. We've loved having you. And, you know, you and I go back a few years now. I've watched everything you've done. I'm very proud of you. Thank you. I'm so proud of you. You've done incredibly well to break through to get to where you are. And I hope that people who see this interview, I hope something good comes out of it. I believe in you. I believe in what you've done. It was a beautiful show that deserves to be seen by way more people than it's been seen by. And there's good things in the future for you. We have, we're hoping that another theatre is going to come. We have hopes for that. But yeah. <clears throat> if anybody out there who can affect change wants to put it on in a London theatre, big London theatre, I'd be more than grateful. Where can people find you online? Uh, Facebook. Chris McGlade on Facebook. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Twitter. I, I go on Twitter, but not so much. And I, I, I have an Instagram account, but I haven't got a fucking clue what I'm <laughs> doing with it. So I don't even bother posting on there, you know. Yeah. Uh, find Chris on Facebook. Uh, that's where you, you can get all his uh, views and comedy and all the other stuff that he puts out. Chris, thanks for coming on. My pleasure. We're going to do some questions for locals as well in God a bless second. You. Thank you. Uh, but thank you for watching and listening. We will see you very soon with another brilliant interview like this one or Raw Show. All of them go out at 7 p.m. UK time. Or 2 p.m. Eastern Standard. Take care and see you soon, guys. We hope you've enjoyed this incredible interview. Remember to subscribe and hit the bell button so that you never miss another fantastic episode. And if you believe that the work we do here at Trigonometry is important, support us by joining our locals community using the link below. Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.